Key Media and Research is pleased to present this podcast. KMR publishes U.S. glass, window film, paint protection film, AGRR, and door and window market magazines. Today we catch up with Mike Rowe, a noted advocate for the trades, longtime host of Dirty Jobs, and founder of the Mike Rowe Works Foundation. Speaking with him is KMR columnist Lyle Hill. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here with Mike Rowe, uh, a voice and face that anyone who watches television uh, certainly recognizes. You need virtually no introduction, Mike. You are just, uh, as just a little while ago described, the uh, icon uh, of, of the, certainly the trade industry. Did you see me blush when I heard that? Yeah, I did a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it was a, it, it was a manly yet genuine rush of blood to the cheeks. I mean, I really don't. <laughs> I mean, an icon? I mean, that's just some high cotton, but uh, yeah, I appreciate but, it. Yeah, but it sounded pretty cool. It did sound, you know, it's better than idol. I'd oh, rather, yes. I'd yes. rather be an icon than an idol. Okay. <laughs> I, I have to jump in to some serious questions now. Please. All right. So one of the questions that's come up from a few of the people who were here today listening to you, and it was an incredibly an incredibly great presentation, just so you know. Thanks. And, the, and your audience is made up of people who work for a living, who work very hard, but the jobs aren't necessarily dirty, but they're, they're hard. You, you sweat, you, mm-hmm. you fret, and, uh, and you, you do your best to satisfy your customers and all that stuff. Okay, Mike, so the first question I've got for you is, what would you tell a kid uh, who wants to go into the trades, but whose parents are telling him or her, not to do that and are instead pushing him or her toward college. Yeah, that's a tough one because I'm a big fan of honoring your mother and father, right? And you, I don't know that I should just tell kids, hey, look, uh, your, your parents are wrong. Take it from me, Mike Rowe. What I might do is, is show my folks the things I had seen that made me want to do this. Mm. And happily, there are a lot of resources out there today where a kid can go. You know, it's not just TV shows like the stuff I work on. You can go online. You can go to my foundation. You can go to MicroWorks. You can go to any number of places um, and, and look at really simple interviews and profiles of people who have prospered as the result of learning a skill that's in demand. So, you know, I think, I think the better argument is, look, Mom, look, Dad, I'm not saying no to what you think I ought to do, but what I'd like you to do is look at everything I'm looking at. And hear me, you know, let me make a case for why I think welding would would be a good path. Let me explain why I think heating and air conditioning repair represent a a straight glide path to a six-figure income, which, by the way, I'm going to get to a lot faster if I'm not saddled with paying off 100 grand in college debt. So, you know, if, if, if there's a kid listening to this, that's you know, be reasonable. Don't be disagreeable. They're your parents. And you know what? They're scared. They don't want to mess you up. They don't, they don't want to give you bad advice. They don't want to, they, there's no playbook for raising a kid, right? So parents are scared and guidance counselors are, are worried. And there's so much pressure coming from so many different angles to get a kid to sign on the dotted line to get into a university that I, it just makes sense to acknowledge the other options. Yeah, and I think sometimes too the you know the the kid comes home from school and he says uh, my counselor said I should go to the university I should go to university get a college degree I'll make a lot more money, and and that's acceptable to the parent. The yeah. kid comes home and says to mom and dad, hey my guidance counselor thinks I'm really not cut out for the university path, 
and he's suggesting maybe another course, the parents get upset. Right. I've seen that, and um, that, that's unfortunate. So I think a lot of kids, uh, young workers, are influenced by their first boss or the first job they had. It kind of almost sets the tone for, for them, at least for several years ahead. What was the best and worst bosses you ever worked for? Oh, man. Uh, well, on dirty jobs, there have been 350 of them. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. those jobs all end basically with me leaving at the end of one day. So. You quit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. or, you know, I think there have probably been a few where they would have invited me to leave before the end of the day. <laughs> um, but in, in real life, I don't... The only bad boss I think I've ever really had was the absentee boss, mm. you know, and but perversely and interestingly, that's a great quality to also have in a boss, a boss that will give you enough autonomy, right? Interesting. And let yeah. you work, you know, without being constantly supervised. But I was lucky in the sense that I, I had a lot of weird jobs as a kid. You know, I worked, I had a stutter when I was very young. And when I got over that, a whole new world opened up, not just in entertainment, but in sales. So I had a lot of jobs in sales. I, I sold things over the telephone. I was one of those horribly uh, just intrusive people who called you during dinner, you know, with six months of Time Magazine or TV Guide and an offer you couldn't refuse. And um, I remember my boss then was a guy named Mike Sisher, and he hired me because I sounded a lot older than I was mm. at the time. And he gave me all sorts of interesting advice. But what I really learned on that job that nobody seems to talk about today is that just because you're good at something doesn't, doesn't mean you, you love it, right? Like, I was really good at selling magazines over the telephone. I hated it. I hated doing it. But I was really good at it, Lyle. I mean, really. I mean, and so you get stuck in this weird thing. Like what happens when you wind up doing something you don't enjoy that pays you a great wage? And of course, it goes the other way too. You know, just because you love something doesn't, doesn't mean you can't suck at it. And, and, and we see that all the time. All the time. So I only point it out because, you know, my boss pointed that out to me a long time ago. And I, I really haven't heard anybody talk much about it since. But it does pertain to what you mentioned earlier. What do we tell our kids? Like, what do we, what does job satisfaction really mean? And for a lot of people, it means being able to do the thing that you think is going to make you satisfied. And the idea that your skills are going to line up some, in some magical way with, with your dream, that's, that's part of this conversation too, because there are a lot of myths and misperceptions out there that people have around the kinds of jobs that we're talking about. People think they're vocational consolation prizes. People think that they don't offer a real path forward to prosperity. They're wrong, and they need to be disabused of that. Well, I couldn't agree with the things you've just said more. How do we fix the, the problem we have in America today with 11 million jobs open and I mean, it's just incredible. You yeah. pointed out in your presentation 20 years ago, there was 2 million jobs open. Now we've got 11 million jobs open, yeah. and we're just not filling them. People just don't want to work. Yeah. What is our – it has to be fixed. As a country, we have to fix this. It's true. Um, it, this will sound somewhat fatalistic, maybe, like the silver lining. When I look at all – when I look at the amount of student debt on the books, 
1.7 trillion. And when I look at the number of jobs that are available that don't require a four-year degree, 11.5 million, then it's clear that eventually something's going to go splat. And when it goes splat, that's when we'll take it seriously. Now, what does that mean, right? I mean, is it a recession? Is it a depression? Is it a complete collapse of the infrastructure? Is it uh, rolling blackouts every month as opposed to every year? There are a lot of things that have started to happen right now that are bad and have people's attention, but we're not at a critical tipping point yet. When we get there, my guess is we'll see the government and we'll see private industry take a real serious look at what I have been preaching to anybody who listens for the last 14 years, which is better PR. You need to completely rethink the definition of a good job, and you need to do a much, much better job of highlighting people who have prospered in these very areas that have, that have fallen out of favor. And it's not just the skilled trades. I mean, it's first responders. It's cops. You know, there's a tough time to be a cop in this country right now. And you've got to ask yourself, what, what, what parent who, who isn't in law enforcement, for instance, would, would want their kid to go into that line of work right now, where the level of appreciation is, is just so rotten? So it's, there, there is a link, in my view, and, and it does have to do with appreciation. You either appreciate your first responders or you don't. You either appreciate your skilled tradesmen or you don't. You either appreciate your farmers or you don't. If we don't change that baseline level of appreciation, then I'm afraid we're just going to be pushing the rock up the hill. Sure. Thanks. It's, a, it's called MicroWorks, my name, M-I-K-E-R-O-W-E, works.org. We award about a million and a half to $2 million a year in work ethic scholarships. Uh, anybody is welcome to apply. These scholarships are set aside and specific for people who want to pursue uh, a, a skill that doesn't require a four-year degree. So for those of you who are even remotely thinking about getting into the autoglass uh, glazing or window tinting business, write that down and maybe take a look. Maybe, maybe that's for you. Okay, last question. It's been suggested, maybe not to you directly, but it has been suggested that maybe there's a career in politics ahead for you. Now, I, I know you laugh, but I have heard this more. I've got a couple of people behind you going, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, look at the two of them, too. I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> but, but, but if they would vote for you, almost anyone would. But is there, is that, have you, have you given that any thought? Yeah, I have. Um, not serious thought. I, I think a lot about why so many people have asked me to run. And I, I don't think it's because of any super specific stance I've taken. Um, I, I try and live in the middle. You know, I'm, I'm vocal on social media. I have opinions and I, I break some eggs from time to time. But look, I think, I think people look around at the political landscape and they see what they see. They see a lot of people who dress the same, who talk the same, who make the same sort of promises. They see a lot of people who, 
who, who talk in platitudes and bromides, right? And this is a big part of our problem, I believe. You know, when, if, you're, if you want to get elected for office, you have to say things that apply to vast numbers of people. I don't do that. In fact, I look at those bits of cookie-cutter advice and, and usually take them apart. And people appreciate that because I think they see the truth in it. But I also am sympathetic to, to an extent to the politician because you can't do what I do. When I, my foundation is, is all about small individuals. That's why it's called micro works, one at a time. You, know? you can't take that approach as a politician. You have to say things that apply to large numbers of people. And so I'm not, I'm not really interested in trading in and bromides and platitudes, so I've kind of stayed out of the fray. But I also think people look at a guy who crawls through a sewer for a living, yeah, and they see him covered in other people's filth, and you're, they say, "You're real." Well, whatever, whatever I am, he's he's not lying to me, right? You don't lie to somebody when you're covered in other people's <laughs> crap. It's, just, it's not convincing. Yeah, not usually. <laughs> um, Mike, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time you've given us today. Uh, I have not had the chance to know you personally and probably never will get to know you very personally, but from what I do know and the time we've spent together, I, I can't thank you enough for your efforts to improve our lives in the trades. Thank well, you so much. It's a pleasure. And thanks for the book, The Broken Tomato. I'll read it on the plane. <laughs> thanks, Mike. <laughs>